Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I was intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Michael from Iceberg Cyber, a fellow Ontarian and Torontonian as well, to talk about his company and his journey. Michael, welcome to the show, and please tell us about yourself and the company. Thanks, Evgeny, for having me. My name is Michael Bukaich, CEO and founder of Iceberg Cyber. We are on a mission to create the cybersecurity version of a credit score for small businesses. This is quite unique and a good way to go because eventually people always ask about, are you secure? And we say, yes, no, maybe. Or as we say in cybersecurity, it depends. So by giving someone a score, and we already have a variety of companies that provide external view and external visionary for companies from outside, I think it's quite a good idea. And also, we always talk about metrics. So with this score, we can see if our metrics or our score goes up and down, we can know if we're more or less secure in general. Yeah, that's right. That's our big mission here is to try and clarify, give a leading vision for small businesses to track their cybersecurity. The industry is ripe with lots of technical complexity and jargon that's confusing to small business owners. And by small business owners, our main clients are like dentists and accountants. They know about dentistry, not that much about computers. So we're trying to simplify the methods of communication so that they can meaningfully engage with their cyber risks. I'm wondering, like before we go to the main topics of the show, why did you choose to work with dentists, insurance companies, so this type of people? But I have my own view, but I'm really interested in your view. Last year, I read a federal government report saying that one in five Canadian small businesses were the victim of a cybercrime. That was very striking to me. If you combine that statistic with the stat that says that 98% of Canadian businesses are small businesses, you can see how widespread this problem is. I know many small business owners. Everyone knows a small business owner because there's so many of them. And they're regular people whose largest investment is their business. To think that they would wake up one morning with a $50,000 ransomware claim or some other interruption to their operation is devastating. And that was really what inspired me to do something about it. Usually my first question is what inspired you to open the business? You just answer it because this was inspired you. Was there anything else that inspired you to do this or judging the report or maybe talking to many people as well? Yeah, the report was a big eye opener. Otherwise, I've been around computers since I was a kid. Like many people, I like computers. I like to think I know a lot about computers and I know a lot of small business owners. It's not in their realm of expertise. And so that was really what pushed us to get involved and try and make a solution that could help regular people. Talking about cybersecurity can be a little bit daunting between the sensationalist news articles and all products that you can spend your money on. There can be a little fog creating fear for small business owners not, not knowing what to do. And that was why we chose to go this route with our cyber score to try and give people a common framework of communication so that they can learn about cybersecurity and improve their own cyber resilience with their cyber score. Yeah, one of my friends, Gabby, he has a company called Wiser Training for training people. And he, this is one of his motivation to start the company 
because in U.S., he saw how many dentists, how many small businesses are uneducated on a cyber and how important it is to help them as well. Because if you calculate them, there are a majority of the people in the country in one way or another. Now, here's the interesting part about small medium businesses. In majority of the time, as you mentioned, you don't have the money to pay for ransomware, but you also don't have the money for pay for expensive services. What was the validation? How would you know that when you go and create the solution, they will actually buy it? That's a big challenge. A lot of the advisors that we spoke to in the formative stages of the company were warning us about the small business market. I even cut off the medium part of SMB. I just talk about small businesses. Small businesses, they don't have a lot of money. They're hesitant to spend anything. They're naturally frugal, as they should be. We're trying to slot into the entry point, the gateway investment for most of these small businesses into IT. In our current portfolio, for many of our clients, we are their first investment into IT. They buy Microsoft licenses or other cloud platforms, but they don't have a managed service provider. They have come to us because they're concerned about cybersecurity. We help them along the path with our cyber score. We give them some tutorials, and then really they just lean on us and call us to help them with IT problems, which we embrace because that's part of the value chain that we provide. So we have to price ourselves to be that entry point. We can't be so expensive that we are trying to charge them enterprise pricing because a dentist doesn't have thousands of dollars a month just to spend on cybersecurity. They have other IT needs as well. And so we got to be practical with where we place ourselves in that mosaic because there are many partners that have to collaborate in order to help provide a dental clinic with seamless and secure IT operations. When you knew what you're going to create and you mentioned the risk score, and when you approach some of the clinics or some of the small businesses, what was your reaction? We spent the first couple of months on the telephone cold calling people. Not the most glamorous or time-efficient tactic. However, it proved very meaningful for us to get firsthand feedback. Dental clinics are very challenging to cold call because the receptionists are well-trained to screen vendor calls. We spent a lot of time pounding the pavement. We went to some business associations to talk to business owners. Once you get in front of a human being and connect genuinely, everyone seems pretty open to talk about cybersecurity. It's a hot topic in the news. People hear about it and they don't really know all the details. So when you approach them genuinely and say, here's what we do, let's try and explain this simply, show them the different facets of risk that they engage with, then the conversation starts flowing. We've been getting meaningful feedback from small business owners like dentists, car dealerships, accountants, because cybersecurity is swirling around in their mind. The news does a great job at making it scary and sensationalist, but that motivates the small business owners to take it seriously. And we're trying to be in the right place at the right time for when they start taking it seriously, we can provide them with meaningful education and a way to track how their business is doing and how they can improve. Interesting. After you did this, did you already had the solution in mind when you were doing the cold calling? Or you're basically thinking where you need to pivot and navigate to create what they need? We do the cold calls before we build the solution. In the ideation process, we try and find ways to pack together the full package so that if someone calls us on and says, I love this idea, deliver it to me tomorrow, we can piece it together manually. That empowers us to be agile. Because every time you cold call someone, they're going to say something different. It would be great if they all said, yes, I would love that. Here's my credit card information. But usually they say, that sounds cool. It'd be great if you did this, or I don't need this aspect. I need a different aspect. So 
we put up the smoke screen, tell people that we can do things, knowing that we have enough manual capabilities to piece it together if they need it in the short term. And once we get enough consensus from a group of clients, then we start meaningfully developing the solution to deliver it at scale. Were you able to have some design partners as part of this? Basically, people that told you we're going to help you and we're going to buy it when you're done. Yeah, we have that ongoing right now. Indeed. We've been doing a bunch of disparate small businesses, one-offs. They get grouped into different classes, but usually they're pretty much the same with the product. We work with a handful of managed service providers that are providing us feedback on the product. And then we have one client that we truly can call a design partner. They've been using it, providing us meaningful feedback, showing us how they use the product and saying, we need this feature because like we click through this user experience. If you tweak this part, it would be better for us. If you gave us this data, it'd be better for us. That is a huge help. And it's really meaningful after they pay us, because then you can tell that they're providing genuine feedback. It's not just that they're giving you the shopping list of the infinity features that would be great because it's easy to create a free list if they're not paying. But this partner in particular, they're paying us for the subscription. They use it. They show us how they use it. And then when they give us the suggestions on features, we can tell that they're doing so genuinely. Did you went and raise money to develop a solution later on yourself? Or what was the next step after you realized there's a buy-in to the idea? We're still early on in the process. The company's been bootstrapped. We have just recently passed our six-month anniversary. Congrats. So if you ask me again in six months, my answer would be a little bit different. But we've been able to stay lean and bootstrap. Really, it's because there are enough open source tools that we can compile to deliver value to clients testing out different features before we have to make our own proprietary versions to do so at scale. So we're relying on that community to piece together different features, hack together options to smokescreen to clients, and then using their feedback to guide how we change the product. This is fascinating because if you have so many different open source solutions, would you say the customer say, but you don't really create anything, you just piece stuff together, what I need to pay you, it's free to use. That's a fun topic to discuss. Like the clients are not paying us for the tools that we use. Clients are paying us to deliver value to them. And in our business, the value is the assessment of risk. However we do that is our own business. None of my clients really know that. Maybe some of the MSPs understand the tools we use because they have used some of them themselves. But the reason MSPs pay us is because the value that we give them is saving them time. Their technicians don't have to do it. We cover way broader of a risk profile than they would do internally. So the value proposition is not that we use tools and so can you. The value proposition is we're delivering you insight without having to do any of the work. Less pain, faster, less work. That's what people are paying us for. We definitely as a word going to faster work. I think time to value for me is very important because everything moves so fast. Look in the last six months. Like there is chat GPT, everything changed since it's very interesting. You mentioned risk several times. So for the people that are listening right now, I'm like, what do you mean by risk? Like how do you define risk? Isn't the risk for Michael and risk for Evgeny going to be different? Maybe Michael like extreme sports and again, you like to play chess. And for him, risk, it will be to play chess and for you to do something else. And I'm sure when you talk to small businesses and not a good in medium, when you tell a risk to them, the dentist and a hairdresser probably going to have completely different views and risks. Everyone's risk profile has some nuance to it. Our go-to-market strategy is try and cover the biggest part of this bullseye with automated tools so that we can deliver value to 
a large portion of the economy. Right now, we're covering four primary components of small business risk. First one is small business website. So our website security component is profiling the website for exposed vulnerabilities in the software, like cross-site scripting and SQL injection, looking for WordPress vulnerabilities. Almost half of the internet uses WordPress. Profiling whether they have a web application firewall. Those are big components of risk that are almost universal to any small business. A lot of the clients will say when we're prospecting them, my website is just a billboard. I don't really use it for anything. Okay, there's still a ton of risk associated with that because someone could take the website down, hijack the website, use it to promote malware or inappropriate material that defaces your company. Even though for a small business, they're not processing a lot of e-commerce transactions, website's still a big component of their risk profile. And we're trying to show practical risks and then practical steps to resolve those risks. So low-level stuff. Email security is very similar. We'll inspect the small business's email client to look for anti-spoofing settings, which are notoriously overlooked, like DMARC and SPF and DKIM. We'll look for secure email gateways. And then really the most accessible thing when talking to a small business owner is we're looking for breached credentials on the dark web. That's an easy one to get the conversation going because almost everyone has had their account stolen at some point by someone and their passwords are available for sale on the dark web. So we'll find those credentials for the small business and then walk them through the remediation process. Your employees have lost this email password combo, that email password combo. So this is a good reminder to talk about password hygiene, use unique passwords for each account, and then go and reset all their passwords. Third component is really our highest touch. We provide the small business with a small network appliance, tiny little palm-sized computer. They plug it into their office network. It'll automatically discover all the network-connected devices and then do detailed vulnerability profiles on each one. This is where we'll see a big component of the risk profile. Out-of-date software, known exploitable vulnerabilities, old devices, uncredentialed services, we compile all of that into the risk report and then help the small business either DIY or connect them with an IT provider in their area to resolve those issues. For the dentist, the big one is Windows 7. There's still a ton of Windows 7 devices prevalent in dental clinics. Most of them are in like the x-ray machines that you'll see. So the clinic, the dental clinics will say, oh, we didn't even know that was a computer. And we say, yeah, okay, that x-ray machine's got a computer and it's got a super old computer in it that has a ton of vulnerabilities. It's a sore spot in your risk profile that you need to resolve. Then the fourth component is very similar to that. We do an external network profile from our cloud servers down to their public IP address. So it's looking at the exposed network services and vulnerabilities that you can see externally from their office. First of all, I think it's a very good set of tools. How do you even solve the problem of Windows 7 in the external machine? They cannot really patch it. Network segmentation. You're totally right. You cannot patch it because this German x-ray machine was built 15 years ago and has no vendor support anymore. And I'm definitely not paid enough to tell the clinic to patch it. So we tell them, don't risk patching it because I can't help you if this thing gets bricked. But network segmentation is the easy way to resolve this. Get this on a separate virtual LAN. And then at least if the x-ray machine gets compromised, it doesn't impact the rest of your operation. As a CEO, even so you don't have a very big team right now, you have multiple hats you need to put, and there's lots of tasks you need to manage. 
So let's talk about task management first. How do you deal with tasks? How do you prioritize what you need to do today? It's very easy to get overwhelmed with tasks. My routine is Sunday nights, I set out the objectives for the week and then organize my calendar. Then every night I update my calendar for the next day. That's my routine, which starts off with wishful thinking on Sunday nights because by Tuesday, the whole calendar gets rearranged, new stuff pops up, fires have to be put out, new opportunities come. Really, the way that I handle it is stick to the calendar. Every moment of my calendar is full with whatever activities I either planned on doing or had to switch up and then do instead. I use that to manage my time. If I get too many things happening in the same half hour that I know I'm being overloaded and I just start bumping things. And that way, at least I can put some unmovables throughout the weekly calendar to make sure that I don't keep bumping them. It's unavoidable that some tasks just keep getting bumped and bumped. And if I find that something's bumped, I just start deleting it because I realize that if I bumped it so many times and it's really not that important to do. Sounds familiar. Let's talk a bit about culture. So again, I guess relatively small team. I'm not sure how many people right now, but at one point you're going to hire people. Did you discuss with your partners about culture and how you plan to approach of hiring people, not just how smart they are and how technical they are, but how is it going to actually fit to your vision of work ethics? We are six people right now. I say that with some pride because it's a huge challenge to add people to the team, especially when you start off with three people, four people. Everyone that you add is a huge proportion of growth, and they change the overall dynamic significantly just by numbers. I read a really good book a couple of years ago that places the emphasis more on hiring character than skill, because skills you can train. Character is hard to change and foundational when it comes to building a team. I like to say that I look for character. In some cases, you got to just take what you find. Fortunately, we have found great characters to add to the team in our early stages. It was probably going to change as we grow nonetheless, but we look for people with a high level of creativity and the ability to drive an initiative with some leadership. That's required when you're a small team because I can't be everywhere. And so if we're going to grow efficiently, we need people that can think critically with creativity and build their own objectives and deliver on them. That's a decentralized command that we try and infuse with our work. That's been working for us so far. Whenever someone asks me about this sort of like how you build the team question, at some point in my life, I read some quote that said that when you're building a startup, at some point you have to make the jump between a group of pirates to a well-organized Navy. I have not figured out how to do that yet. I got to tell you, honestly, I had a company before too, still don't know how to build a Navy. I know how to manage a band of pirates and I'm growing more fond of the concept of staying as a group of pirates. So I spent five and a half years in the Navy. So I think you need to spend time in the Navy to understand the difference between pirates and Navy, because you need to be part of this culture first. <laughs> then you will know what or don't see and you get there. But it's a bit of a different story. No doubt my lack of understanding on how to do that is because I have not worked for a large company before. I graduated school, worked for a small business, went back for grad school, then started my own company. So I have not had the pleasure of working in a corporation with any sort of human resources or leadership structure. I guess you need mentors that spend time there and can help you to see the view and what do and do not in the company. You already have customers. You already sell the solution. So this is great. 
And I'm sure when you're talking to new customers, they always ask, yeah, if you have this feature, we'll buy the solution. And you already mentioned that when you started, you're kind of running with a bit of a fog idea. How it is right now? Do you tell customers, yes, we have it, and go back, develop it quickly? Or tell, yes, if you buy the solution, we're able to develop it for you in the next two months, for example. There's no doubt there's got to be a little bit of both sides of that. If someone is just telling you the wish list that they want before they buy, it could be a sign that they're really not interested and that's their way of saying, no, thank you. I've lived that experience before where instead of the prospect saying, we don't want this, they say, if you had feature X, Y, Z, we might want this. And it takes some intuition to try and quantify their comments to see if they're just saying, no, thank you in a counterproductive way. Or if they're actually saying, yeah, I would put my money down if you had these extra features, it would be worth it to me then. So like, I go back on both sides of the line. If someone says that to me, I try and get them to elaborate and then try and get a reading on whether they're just having me on or if they mean it. And then even more recently, I will push them and say, listen, the entry level pricing that we have is cheap. It's like a hundred bucks a month. If you can't even put a hundred bucks a month down, I'm not going to spend four weeks developing a new feature just for you. I don't say it like that, but you have to push back on them because it's free for them to ask you to do work. It costs a lot of money for us to do work, especially if we're chasing rabbits. With our design partner, the one I referred to earlier, that's what we said. Yeah, we could do those features. And genuinely, that's on the roadmap. That's very realistic for us. We think that we provide you enough value to justify the price as it is. If you put your money down, show us that you're a genuine partner. We'll deliver the value as it is, and then we will start building the new features to tailor to you. That's a reasonable business deal. And that partner appreciated that because they run a business, we run a business, they know that we can't just go dry chasing around their wish list. And they appreciated the core features that we had enough to spend the money. It works for us because it's a low entry point. And for others, I think it works too. The last business that I had, almost every customer deal that we pursued required customization. That may have been a systemic problem, but it meant that to close every deal, we had to spend more money to do work. That's a painful process. Yeah, it was very hard to grow and expedite. Yeah. If you took yourself back to the beginning of this particular company, would you do anything differently? It took me too long to build up enough courage to get on the phone and cold call people. It's super easy to make excuses and say, I got to do this feature before I reach out to people. I got to do this before I reach out to people. It's a crutch. It's a mental weakness because you really can't guide the product development without asking someone about it. You can bank a lot on intuition, no doubt. This whole venture is banked on intuition. It's a gamble, but it's fed by customer feedback. This is like the number one recommendation I give to other startup founders that I talk to is get on the phone and call people. Cold calling sucks. You get rejected a lot. I'm not kidding. We get 10% dial to human connection. One out of 10 calls, a human picks up. The rest is just screen to voicemail. So I spend a lot of time dialing. When we actually talk to a human being, we get a ton of value. And you can invest weeks and only talk to five people, but that's incredibly valuable because otherwise you're just following your own intuition, which is a big gamble. So you started the dark part of the show when you talk about the hard part calling. Let's continue and talk about dark side. If everybody is listening, this is the part where we talk about failures and how stuff didn't work and maybe lessons we learned as well. 
So Michael, tell us some stories that you learn from. It doesn't have to be this company. It could be company before this because this is the second company. This could consume the entire portion of the podcast. I will keep it <laughs> constructive so that we don't slip too far into the dark side. Yeah, it's tough building a company. That's not a surprise. If anyone thought that starting your own company was going to be smooth sailing, then you're in the wrong business. It's a challenge. The challenge is what draws me to it. And I'm sure that's what draws many people to it. We're trying to overcome a huge challenge. There are dark days. The voice inside of our heads is designed to distract and dissuade us from achieving our objectives. It is like the roommate that just watches TV and talks during the movies. Got to try and silence that so that you can stay focused on what you need to do. My previous company survived through COVID. COVID was dark because as it did for everyone, totally derailed all of our plans. The easiest way to feel down on yourself is when your plans just get completely derailed. We had to let people go. That was super tough because many of them were our friends. That's the startup type of life. Many of them were our friends. We had emotional connections to them. We had to let them go. That was rough. It was rough for them, probably more so than for us. Dealing with the heavy days is a strategy that everyone needs to have because they're going to happen. Like the heavy days happen all the time, whether you're just seasonally down on yourself, or you get rejected by too many cold calls in the same week, or you get rejected by a big client, it's going to happen. So in my mind, I know that the failures happen, plural. I know that the failures are going to happen. I don't see them as existential. You're going to have to get really creative to tell me how I'm going to be knocked out existentially. But I do know that failures are a part of the process. And that's really my coping strategy because I don't let them get to me because I know that they're part of the process. I know cold calling is part of the process. So I don't get down on myself when I get rejected on calls because I expect a one in 10. So if I get one in 10, I'm feeling good. If I get zero in 10, I know I just got to call more people. So basically you set yourself a level where you're going to be more happy. Even so by design, it is disappointing a task as it is. I think in some ways I'm a delusional optimist, but in most ways it's practical statistics. I'm a huge hockey fan, so I'll draw on a hockey analogy. You see the coaches freak out and get super emotional when a penalty gets called on their team. But penalties get called in almost every game. So this is sort of like failures in a startup. You're going to fail. Overwhelming percentage is that you're going to see some failures in the process. So I know that it's coming. And that's my coping strategy to not let it get to me because I know that it's part of the process. Yeah, let's go a bit deeper there. When... Days happened that you like really down, maybe had cold calls, maybe the company didn't went well, the day didn't go well, the code didn't develop, you were not ready for a customer. What do you do? Like, you know, it's going to be better, but what do you do this time? Do you meditate, do you run, do you play hockey? Like, how do you get back the energy? Physical activity, no doubt, a great coping strategy. I think mostly because it distracts your mind from spiraling and listening to the voice inside your head. Walking, super handy. Walking is a great coping strategy. It seems basic and simple. I think there's some sort of like nerve ending in the foot endorphin release mechanism that helps you defragment the ideas in your mind when you're walking. I walk. I like jogging. I love swimming. Swimming is great. I don't play as much hockey as I should, but physical activity is a great way to just cope because it distracts your mind from spiraling. And I think that if we were 100% logic driven, we wouldn't get down on ourselves on bad days because we know it's part of the process, but we're human beings. Even I'm not 100% logic driven and I get down. And so that's like physical activity is great. Walking is great. Talking to other people is good. It's, it is 
part of the process. You have to be disciplined to tell yourself, I'm going to fail in some regards, but as long as I keep going, I am not a failure. Where in this game, we only lose when we quit. So if you keep going, then you'll have more opportunities to succeed. Very powerful. Is this something you discuss with your teammates? Do you ask them what they do when they have a bad day? I don't as much as I probably should. It's individual. You cannot really say that swimming for you and for me is going to be the same. Totally. I don't as much as I should. I find it way easier to hype myself up about these sort of concepts and deal with my own struggles than I do talking to others. I'd like to think that's a common problem that a lot of people have, but I don't know. It is a challenge of leadership to try and make an emotional connection with your team and have these tough conversations with them so that you know that they're prepared in the same way. Everyone's going to get down on themselves. Even in a structure with only six people, it's hard to talk up and down the chain. It's my job to make sure that my teammates have the coping strategies that work for them. I don't know if I'm doing a good enough job on that, but having these types of conversations is a healthy way to make some progress. Michael, thank you very much. Really enjoyed the episode. Fantastic. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, everyone that's listening to us. And please continue to subscribe, like us, comment us, and tell us your friends about it.